Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Talking about Labor Day, um, it's a day where we celebrate workers and the workforce and all that. And one of the things that we primarily remember Labor Day as is a time to uh, take off of working. And one of the things that's very essential in Scripture, it talks about entering the Sabbath rest. In the Old Testament, it was keeping the seventh day holy, the Lord's day, but that was just a type. It's not about Sunday, and actually the Sabbath was Saturday. It is about the Sabbath rest found in Jesus Christ. It's about entering his rest. That is what our entire faith is about. And today what I am going to be talking about, I'm going to continue what I began three weeks ago and hopefully finish up today talking about God's three primary covenants. I'll give a real quick review from what I did last time. If you want to listen in more detail, it's on YouTube, you can go there. So go ahead and open up with prayer. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have joined together today. We thank you that where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in their midst. We thank you that you promised you will never leave nor forsake us. We thank you that you're toward us and not against us. We thank you for your blessing in our lives and in our midst. And we give the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So three weeks ago, we began looking at Adam and Eve. <clears throat> Though created in God's image and likeness, they embraced the lie, the serpent's lie, and ceased believing who God was and who they themselves were, made in God's image and God's likeness. The lie was you need to do to become what you already are. And sadly, in religion and sadly in the church, that lie still is there. We still strive and attempt to achieve to become who God declares we already are. Adam and Eve were made in God's image and God's likeness. And I can't say this enough. What I was taught was when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they ceased being God's image. But go to Genesis 9, 6, and it will say that man is still in the image of God still in his image, still in his likeness. That never changed. That included all humanity. The problem is, not all humanity realizes they're God's image, they're God's likeness. Not all humanity realizes that his breath dwells within. And even more sadly is, a large portion of the church doesn't realize that either. But that's what we're on the mission of changing and it begins here. And as we begin to receive it and accept it and live it, it just kind of vacillates out all around us. Now, it's essential that we realize that nothing we can do is powerful enough to undo what God has already done. Is a lie, the serpent's lie, more powerful than God's truth? Why do we ascribe more power to it? Saying that 
Satan totally undid everything that God had done. That's not true. That's part of the lie. Romans 11.29 says this, for God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. That's from the New Living Translation. Everything God endowed us with, Adam and Eve with, was there regardless of their state of eating the tree from the tree of knowledge or not eating from it. And that same thing is true of each and every one of us. I want to tell each and every one listening, you were created with God's purpose. His DNA is in you. You have spiritual gifts in you, whether you are a believer or not. Whether you realize it or not, nothing can change that. And the joy that we have in life is discovering who God created us to be. Now, embracing the lie, God's gifting and calling in Adam and Eve quickly became buried deep in the soil of Adam's heart and Eve's heart. What was always to be remembered quickly became forgotten. That was true for our first parents and everyone, all of their prodigy after. After their fall, God picked up Adam and Eve, brushed them off, and it says he sent them out. We focus on he kicked them out, but no. It says he sent them out, ex apostolo. God sent Adam and Eve, after they sinned, after they violated God's decree not to eat of the tree, he still sent them out with the purpose he created them in, to be fruitful, fill, and multiply. But you know what their problem was? They forgot who they were. All they could focus on was their shortcomings, their failures, how they missed it, their shame. I'm sure no one here ever feels that way. That is part of the lie that you are experiencing. And the truth is you are God's image. You are loved. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more or make him love you less. You are highly qualified. You are equipped. Everything you need for life and godliness has always been within you. And our joy in life is discovering that. Now, God ex-apostoloed from the word apostolo. He sent them out with his authority, with his calling, with his purpose in them. But the truth became buried deep in the soil of their hearts. Jesus' first parable was about the soils. And it's all connected back to the garden here. But that's another message. We have always been and always will be God's image bearer. When you look in the mirror every morning, every night, realize you are looking into the face of God. Now, when we look at scripture, we see three primary covenants that God mentions. The first one is the Abrahamic. That's based on pedigree. God's promises, God's blessings become one's right and inheritance because of one thing, one's pedigree, their birthright, and that was being of the seed of Abraham. The second is the Mosaic Law. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Performance. God's promises are one's right and inheritance because of one's performance. Sadly, a lot of the church is based in that mind uh, set of thinking. 
And that is so foreign to what, what Jesus came to establish. The whole book of Galatians is about that. But again, that's beyond the scope of today's message. The third primary covenant of God is a new covenant. We'll be talking about that today. That's based on position. God's promises are one's right and inheritance purely because of one thing, your position in Christ. Are you in Christ? If you are, your position is eternally secure in him and nothing you or anyone else does can change that. There is nothing you can do to cease being your father's son or daughter. Being in Christ, you qualify for all of God's precious and powerful promises, regardless of your family pedigree or fluctuating performance. And that's good news. Now, when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant based on pedigree, Genesis 12, 2 through 3 and 17, 6 and 8, God says this, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants. After you uh, and for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Let me ask you this, where in there does it say that you have anything to fulfill in that covenant? It is a one-sided covenant based solely on one thing, what God has done, what Abraham has done. Abraham believed God and it was credited for him, to him as righteousness. The Abrahamic covenant was rooted in Abraham's faith alone. Under the Abrahamic covenant, God's favor was not guaranteed to those who behaved right, but to those who were born right, to those who were born into or joined themselves as belonging to the family line of Abraham. It wasn't based on your performance. For this reason, even though the patriarchs lied, talked about that last time, they weren't the nice, righteous, you know, upright people. They had a tendency to be scoundrels. They lied, they deceived, they were morally depraved in many instances. And God never even once rebuked them. But he did rebuke the other people for coming back at them for the nasty things that they did. That always gave me trouble until I realized the Abrahamic covenant. Those I bless are blessed and nothing can change that. You are blessed of God and nothing in all creation can change that. What does it say in Romans? Nothing can separate from us from his love, right? Nothing you do can separate you from his love. Did you hear that? How many times do you feel unloved and unworthy? That is a lie. Anytime you experience that, you need to speak his word over yourself. You are his beloved. I belong to him. And nothing can change that. He calls the things that see themselves as not as though they are. Now, when we look at the nation of Israel, they behaved in the same way as the patriarchs. And all through their bondage in Egypt... 
and on their way to Sinai. They complained, they disobeyed, they threatened to even kill Moses. And not once did God rebuke them. Go and look. That's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? God, just every time they did that, he blessed them, he fed them, he provided water for them, he took care of them. He provided for them. But this was about to radically change. Now we get to the law. Deuteronomy or Exodus 19:5 and Deuteronomy 7:12 and 11:26 to 28. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to his forefathers. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey me, uh, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, and the curse if you disobey. Where are the requirements placed? totally on you. You must obey. And if you don't, you are cursed beyond cursed, beyond cursed, the worst curse that could ever be imagined. That's not the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant changed the Abrahamic covenant that you're still under pedigree, but now in order to get all the blessings that were freely yours, you have to earn them. And how do you earn them? By doing everything absolutely right. You know, I was raised in church and I was raised believing we were to follow the Ten Commands. We were supposed to follow the Old Covenant law and mix it up with Christianity. Again, Paul wrote Galatians all about that. And he rebuked Peter publicly for entertaining that belief. And a large portion of the church today embraces that belief. There's nothing in there that God had to do. The responsibility was totally on the Israelites. That's what blessing came through. Israel moved from a pedigree-based blessing to a performance-based blessing. At Mount Sinai, a new covenant was introduced through Moses. Now Abrahamic blessings, which were already freely theirs, became contingent on Israel's performance, on their behavior, on their absolute obedience. Less than 100% compliance resulted in the loss of God's blessing, presence, and provision in their lives and their experience in the curse of the law due to their actions. What blessing is there in that? The only hope you have is to be cursed because Paul repeatedly said, no one can obey the law. If you violate one point, what? You violated all of it. The law is a standard that none of us can obtain. They had no grace period to get used to this new arrangement. They immediately transitioned from the Abrahamic covenant of grace to Mosaic law based on performance. Let's look at their journey, a brief look. Exodus 24, Israel confirms their commitment to behaviorism, to performance, and the Mosaic law with a blood oath. Exodus 32, Moses received the tablets of the law from God and uh, written by God. And then as he was doing that, 
the Israelites had commanded Aaron to make an idol for them to worship. God told Moses to separate himself from the Israelites because he was going to wipe out the entire nation. God never had done that with all the treacherous things that the Israelites had done. Why the change? Now, Moses, he reminded God of his covenant with Abraham, and God relented. Did you ever realize that God forgets things? God doesn't forget things. You know, when God asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know. He wants to make sure we know. And when he spoke that to Moses, I mean, before, Moses was a little bit ticked with the Israelites. But when he heard God say that, it's like, wait a minute, God, you can't do this. You love these people. This is your chosen nation, and you cannot change. This is your heart. That's what God wanted to hear. The blessing was still in there, but it was buried deep in the soil. Now, what happened after that? Israel was struck with a plague. 3,000 died. Moses then led a six-month building project for the tabernacle and when complete, God's glory descended over the new tabernacle for seven weeks and a priest-led sacrificial system was established, designated to alleviate the law's curse against God's people and their ongoing rebellion. Before, you didn't need a priest to go before God, but now there was that wall of separation. You know, that still, unfortunately, occurs in the church and in spirit-filled churches because we always need to find someone to intercede to God for us. I'm not, I'm not dissing asking people to pray, but you don't need to go chasing for prophetic words. I'm going to tell you something. God's tabernacles within you. And if you still your voice and listen, you will hear. I promise you that. Numbers 11, Israel complains about their hardships. And now instead of God receiving blessing uh, from heaven, <laughs> fire falls down from heaven and kills many of them. Then they wail about God's provision and become exceedingly angry and they're stru struck with a plague and many die. They never knew that before. Numbers 12, Miriam, Moses' sister, murmurs against Moses. God becomes angry, it says in Scripture, and she's struck with leprosy. Numbers 13 through 14, Israel sends spies into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb bring back positive report. The remaining 12 sp spread a lie throughout Israel, and as a result, they are struck with a plague and they die. Numbers 15, a man breaks the law by gathering wood on the Sabbath. They don't know how to handle it. They ask God, and what do they hear? Stone him to death, take him outside the camp, just for gathering wood. They never knew stuff like that before. Who could have imagined God could be this bad? God has never been that bad. How many of you believe exact, spiritually the exact same way you did five years ago. The more I grow, the more I find out things that I believe were wrong. You know, as I studied Greek in Bible college, I remember, you know, one time I asked my professors, I said, you know, 
our, our denominations theology says this, but when I look at the Greek, it's saying this, which was contradictory. Uh, I got a stern correction. <laughs> it did not address, you know, what the Greek was saying. Anyone here ever received prophetic words? We used to be part of a prophetic movement and we go to conferences and I've got recordings of prophetic words going back 20 years ago. I want to pull them all out and listen to them. And you know, I was thinking a lot of times when I got those words, this doesn't make any sense. But then after listening to them about five years later, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what God was speaking. We see in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part. I love scripture. Scripture is inspired. But looking and studying ancient manuscripts, the language, and seeing changes and translations over time, I realize we see in part, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But I am going to tell you something. I love Scripture, but you have something more powerful than Scripture can ever be. Scripture is not the Word of God. God spoke to people and they wrote. But there's one thing that's the word of God. And do you know who that is? Jesus. Jesus is the only thing in scripture referred to as the word of God. And the spoken word, the rhema word that comes forth from the mouth of God. I love scripture. And as you see, I use tons of scripture. I value it. But a lot of times what happens, we speak what we see and we may not capture, right? It's just like that telephone game I used to love playing when I was a kid, you know, in the early grades in school where you sent the message down the line and how what changed when it got to the end. You know, as we look through scripture and with things that I'm talking about today, I believe you'll see that those kind of things do happen spiritually as well. In all these events that I spoke about under this new covenant of Mosaic law, Abraham's descendants die under judgment and curse. Now, one looks at this and they can perceive a marked change between God's perceived behavior and his demeanor between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And they can ask, why is this? What we're seeing isn't a behavioral change in God, but rather what we are seeing is the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil from which Adam ate in Eden. We see it finally growing to maturity, ripening and producing fruit in the Mosaic law. Now, Jesus repeatedly said in the New Testament, you have heard it said, but I say. Anyone remember Jesus saying that? Look up what Jesus is referring to when he says you have heard it said. It's the voice of Moses speaking. And then he says, but I say, and he says something totally different. Men don't actually always capture the heart of God correctly but you have the spirit of God living within you. And you know what John said? You don't need anyone to teach you. 
because the anointing abides, tabernacles, remains within you, and that anointing teaches you of all things. And when you learn to discern his voice, there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but we're not here to tell you everything you need to know. We're here to speak the truth, and Holy Spirit within you just jumps up and says, yes, that's it. Or, yep, this part's good, but you need to look into this part a little bit more. You know, when I entered into grace for the first three years, every Sunday I got up on the pulpit and said, you know, I used to teach this, this, and this. I'm sorry, I repent for teaching that stuff because I had got all wrong. That went on for a long time. And I had people say, I've never heard a preacher repent for his teaching before from the pulpit. I want you to know the truth. I love the truth. I am a lover of truth. And I care more about truth than whether it agrees with what I believe or not. And that's what I believe the heart of Father is and what we're to emulate. Now, when we look at the law in Scripture, in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, what does it refer to the law as? The ministry of death. You ever wonder that? Why? Because the law is the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. It's not, it, it's, it, the law was there in embryonic form and a seed in that fruit that was eating. And it took all those millennia from Adam until Moses for that seed to grow out of the soil of man's heart through Moses. Now, one can perceive all the curses as God's punishing them, but in reality, I believe it was the death of Adam reaching maturity in the law that was punishing them. Scripture reveals God as being consistent and not changing. Numbers 23, 19, God's not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human. He does not change his mind. How could God go from a system where you are blessed solely, solely because of Abraham into you are blessed by 100% perfect performance, and then let's jump ahead to the new covenant where you are blessed because of one thing, because of what he has done. God is not a man that he should change his mind. James 3.10, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brother in these things ought not so be. Does a spring send forth both fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brother, and bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt and fresh water. How can God bless in one hand and then reach out his other hand and curse? It is not like that. When we read scripture, we should come away from it with more questions. And it's okay to say, I don't understand. I see contradiction here and there. Do you know how you handle that? You want to go to your pastor and ask. And when I say that, I'm not talking Pastor Andrew. You can ask him, but I'm talking about our chief shepherd, our chief pastor. Ask Jesus. And you know what's going to happen? 
you're going to start getting into a spot in your life where you ask questions and you don't even have to be thinking about it and he's going to drop the answer into your heart in his timing. And it's exciting when that happens on a regular basis. God doesn't bless and curse. He says we can't do it because he doesn't do it. Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord, I do not change. God doesn't change. God didn't change from Abraham to Moses and then change back with Jesus. Something else changed. That's why I say it was a fruit of the tree of knowledge that Adam and Eve ate from. Now look at the last half of that. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Did you catch that? You are not consumed. What does God say about the ancient Israelites offering their children in the fire? Such a thought never entered my mind. God's grace reaches out to all. The problem is, not all have seen or embraced God's grace. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I was raised in a church where it was very comfortable for, essentially we call it in psychological circles, cognitive dissonance. It's okay to believe this truth, this truth, and this truth, and they're all opposing truths. We just flip the switch. We need to realize that when we see that, we're embracing some aspect of the lie. Because grace will bring us into a singular truth that flows perfect all around. Now, between Egypt and Sinai, God only blessed his people before the law, but, um, and they only experienced his love, generosity, and compassion despite their rebellious behavior. Now that the law came, any time one foot got out of line, they experienced the immediate curse of the law without any opportunity to repent. That doesn't sound much like God to me. You messed up, too bad for you. There's still Abraham's pedigree after the law, right? They're behaving no differently than their fathers before them, their ancestors before them, but instead of experiencing God's love and blessing, they're now experiencing the full force of the curse of the law. That should prompt us to think, how can this be? But we get uncomfortable when we see things we don't understand. I want to encourage you to be comfortable with the discomfort because that <clears throat> is where your greatest growing is going to occur. Something changed. It wasn't God. <clears throat> it was his people that changed. What changed was the relationship they were in with God. They didn't want based purely on his blessing. They wanted, <laughs> Tom, you did good. And I know no one here has ever done that. Where, oh boy, I am just so good. No. They moved from pedigree to performance. They're still Abraham's descendants. They're acting no differently uh, <clears throat> than how they did on the other side of the mountain. Pre-Sinai, they worshiped false gods, broke the Sabbath, berbered, complained, grumbled against God and the leadership of Moses. Yet God didn't punish them or rebuke them. He blessed them. The same with their forefathers. He never addressed that negative behavior in a way which grossly 
represented, misrepresented and grieved him. And he continued to bless him. But yet, a few months later, after the law was given, their same behavior as their forefathers resulted in experiencing something they never knew, the full curse of the law. God's blessing was no longer freely received on the basis of one's pedigree, but now you had to perform to get that blessing. The curse now became the inheritance of not only those cursing Abraham and Abraham's descendants, but also of those failing to keep the law 100%. That's why Paul was so hard on Peter. That's why Paul was so hard on the Jerusalem leadership, including the beloved John, who sent men from the circumcision group to Peter to preach to the Galatians that they need to place themselves back under the law. Law and grace do not mix. They don't. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and kill. You should go out and commit adultery and steal and those things. What it is, the blessing is not linked to performance. And you know, you know, one of the things that I found when our church entered grace that we were in, people started realizing I don't have to go to church. So attendance dropped. People started realizing I don't have to tithe, I don't have to give. So the offerings dropped significantly. But you know, the law or grace exposes the heart. And what happens is, in revealing the heart, the only reason people came to church is because they had to. They didn't want to be punished by God if they didn't. They didn't want God to send a breakdown to their car. The same thing with giving. It exposes the heart. And I want to share with anyone listening today, if your heart's exposed in that way, don't run in the trees and cover yourself with figs like Adam and Eve. Take it before God and say, God, I've discovered this weed growing in your garden of my heart. Help. I don't know what to do. He's smart enough to figure it out. And he does so with love. Now, for the next 1,400 years after the giving of law, Israel continually demonstrates their inability to keep Mosaic law and experiences the results of that. Their pride and performance, self-effort, eclipsed what was theirs freely, authentic pedigree. This is similar to what Adam and Eve experienced in being sent out of Edom. All they could focus on was their own effort, and they couldn't focus on the apostolic authority that was given them by God. Mosaic law is rooted in works. It's exerting self-effort to be like God, to be pleasing to God, to be right with God or righteous and accepted by God. It's the ultimate tree, uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fruit from that. And this is what Israel was finally experiencing and they're desiring to add performance to their pedigree in attaining the unearned Abrahamic blessing. However, after many years of harsh labor under the curse and tyranny of the law, Angelicos appeared from heaven and heralded the birth of Israel's promised Messiah. Luke 16, 16 in the New King James, the law and the prophets were until John, 
Since that time, the kingdom of heaven has been preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. John began with a message. God in the flesh is coming. Emmanuel's coming. And Matthew 3, 2 and Mark 1, 3 and Luke 3, 4 and John 1, 23. It tells us pretty much in the same words. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. You know, the interesting thing is, when I look at writers and what I hear people saying, typically is that John came to prepare the way for the Lord. It doesn't say that. It says of the Lord. And translators actually got it very accurate there in the Greek. Of the Lord, it's in the genitive, which denotes possession. It has a very different meaning than for. It means of, it means belonging to. Each of the gospel writers declare that John came to prepare the way of God. Not for God, the way of God. There's a significant difference. John came to prepare God's way and no one else's way. Hence, what we can infer from this is that Mosaic law, which required perfectionistic works-based required uh, requirements, which disqualified every human being, wasn't the way belonging to God. The way of the Lord is Jesus, and it's his grace. God, the Logos, became flesh, was the only one who was able to fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law. John one twenty nine. We see John the Baptist identify Jesus as a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's really interesting, the word take away, it's the word arrow in the Greek, which means to lift up, to elevate. Jesus, the lamb of God, was lifted up for the sin of the world. A lot of times we think of sin, we think of the bad things that we do. Every time you think of the word sin, and this is one of the problems, you know, even in grace, that we look at an old covenant concept of sin as violating law. The word sin, hamartia, missing the mark in the Greek, it means missing God's mark, but it's derived from the Greek word meros, which means a fragmented, disengaged part of the whole. Sin, what I've come to understand sin is, as, and I see others coming out and getting this revelation as well, is sin is believing that you not are not authentically his image. Sin is embracing less of a self-image and God image than what God embraces of you. It's only believing part of what God says about you. The Lamb of God came to lift up the sin of the cosmos, the word world. The Lamb of God came to lift up and take upon himself the sin, the division, the separation, the fragmentation that Adam and Eve brought into the world through eating of the tree, the fallen social order, which is what the cosmos is referring to here. 
Jesus' blood, Jesus came to set humanity free from Adam's bondage, which was uh, incurred upon all humanity. The price Jesus paid was to satisfy Adam's debt. It wasn't to satisfy Satan's debt or God's debt. What did God tell Adam in the garden? Tree of knowledge of good and evil? Don't eat. Why? Because the day you eat, you will surely die. You know why the resurrection, the message of the resurrection, is so crucial to Christianity? Resurrection is life from death. Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They died. They ceased seeing themselves as God saw them. Jesus came and he said, look at me. When you look at me, you're looking in a mirror and you're seeing yourself. As I am, so are you in this world. I am the exact replication of God, the exact image. As I am, so are you. You are his image. You are his likeness. That is why Jesus came. And every human being we encounter, regardless of how vile they could be, we have to realize they're made in God's image. They just don't realize it yet. And the ones who are the most vile, they're the ones who are in most need of God's love. How is it for you when you're going through literal hell in your life? Are you nice and friendly and cozy? Oh my gosh, you don't want to be around me when I'm going through it. When I hit, you know, rocks bottom, just ask Diane. I could get nasty. When we're at that point, we need loving the most to bring us out of that. That's why it says love covers a multitude of sin, a multitude of fragmentation. It heals, it restores. Just as a Passover meal and the blood on the doorpost spared Israel from uh, the angel of death was a reminder for future generations, Jesus' shed blood is a reminder for new covenant believers of being saved from Adam's death and the fruit of Adam's death, which was Mosaic law. Jesus' death put an end to the entire Old Covenant system of its imputation of sin and the sacrificial system used to atone for sin, not to forgive it. All it did was put it off till next year. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14, the writer says, but this man, referring to Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, Did you catch that? Jesus' one sacrifice on the cross covered all sin, past, present, and future for all time. He's a high priest. He sat down at the right hand of God. Priests only sit down when their work is finished. What did Jesus declare on the cross? It is finished. Telastai. It's said that when Romans conquered the battle, they would put up their banner and it would have that word over it, Telastai, that the battle is over, the battle is won. We have the victory, and I want to proclaim over each and every one of us, Jesus died for you, for all humanity, and we have the victory. The problem is we don't realize it. We see all the shame and we go running in the trees and God is calling us to come out of the woods and come into him and embrace who we truly are, his image, his likeness. 
from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. You know, that is a verse that has been so misaligned. Oh yeah, that person that treated me so bad, Jesus is going to sit down and he's going to put his feet over him. No. You know what the enemies of God are? It's the cosmos that was introduced from the lie. It's a belief system. It's not talking about people. Jesus died for all humanity, but not all realize it. So hence, not all enjoy the salvation that he freely provided. Just like we don't enjoy a lot of the benefits that he provided because we haven't connected with them for whatever reason. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. I used to believe you could lose your salvation. And then when I started looking at that, I was like, oh my gosh, what did he do? He forever perfected. I want to tell you this, you are forever perfected and nothing can change that. And who is he talking to? Those who are imperfect. How can I say that? Because any of us still in the process of being sanctified, you're forever perfected. That should encourage you and that should make us rejoice. You know, how many times in the past have you gone to church after every service, you know, every week the altar was flooded with people crying and begging victory and strength over sins that they have dealt with for the past 10 years. I am so glad those days are over because in him it is finished. The victory has been won. Romans 5.13 for until the law was in the world, or for until the law, sin was in the world. Sin's always been in the world since Adam and Eve partook of the tree. But sin is not imputed. Sin is not laid to anyone's account where there is no law. From the time from Adam until Moses, God never laid any sin to anyone's account. Now, I don't have scriptures for this, but I can give them to you if you want uh, later. But the Gentiles were never under any sin. Was anyone here ever Jewish? Or uh, uh, was anyone here ever Jewish? I, no, I wasn't Jewish. I've never been under the law. The law was only given to Jews. Sin's not imputed. The issue that Jesus came to deal with was our believing the lie that I am not his image, that I am not his likeness, that I am not loved, that I have to do to be accepted, that I have to do to be blessed, that I am imperfect and I always will be. John's gospel was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent, a lot of times when you hear that, we think about turning from sin and turning to God. The word repent, metanoia in the Greek, it means to change your thinking, to change your thought process. And what John told his followers, repent, <clears throat> for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> John's message, or the substance of his message, was in a person, Jesus the one who would free us from our sins so we might enter heaven. But let me ask you this, where's heaven? A lot of times we think it's a billion light years away, you know, in the north sky. But Luke 17, 21, this is what Jesus said, and I think he's a good authority. He said, the kingdom of God, which is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, is within you. And you know who he's talking to? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, his 
followers that are around him. That was before the cross. The kingdom of heaven was already in them, but they did not realize it. They believed it was a billion light years away. When I encounter people, I don't care who they are. I don't care what faith they are. I had the opportunity a couple weeks ago, and it was such a wonderful time. I'm talking with someone, and I asked them, do you have spiritual beliefs? Because God dropped a phenomenal word in my heart for them. And they said, yeah, they kind of hesitated. I'm a Muslim. (laughs) I'm like, well, I just feel God dropped something. Allah dropped something in my heart for you. Oh, my gosh, did I say Allah? You know, if you're a Christian in the Middle East, you know what they call God? Allah. They praise Allah. God is God. The only thing that's different in the religions with God is our beliefs about God. But I got to prophesy. I didn't say, thus saith the Lord. But I just spoke, this was probably going on in your life. You probably experienced this. And this is what God's heart is for you. That he loves you. He cares about you. They were in tears. They said, I needed that word. It is time that we stop allowing our political affiliations, our sexual beliefs, our, our, our religious prejudice to keep God's love from flowing through us. That is a message the church today needs to hear. We should be the forerunners of this. God is not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not an independent. He's got a one-party system, and it's him. <laughs> now, actually, it's three-party, Father, Son, Spirit, but the three are one, but we won't go there. Jesus pours out his spirit so we might experience and even enforce heaven and earth. Whenever we see the word earth, you know, in the Hebrew, what the earth was called? Adam. You know where we're to enforce heaven? Within here. Not by our own strength, but because of the strength he's given and he's loaded. For 33 years, Jesus served as a perfect representation of God in the flesh, revealing the name and nature of his Father in whose image we are made, in whom all flesh has its being. Acts 17.28 says that. On the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. In the Gospels, we see the temple of the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. It wasn't man doing it from bottom to top. It was God doing it from the top to below. The maros, the division, the wall of separation, which the law did was, it said in, out, but everyone was out. Jews just lived under the delusion that they were better than the Gentiles around them. The old covenant system introduced through Moses, which was mediated by angels and maintained through multiple generations, was now redundant and soon to be replaced. Hebrews 8, 7 through 12. For that first covenant, if it had been faultless, there would have been no place or not been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, but because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. 
You know, anytime when we see where God says, I disregarded them, you know what he disavows? He just doesn't disavow the person. He disavows the mindset. God doesn't agree with everything that we do. But he says, that's not who I created you to be and that's not who you are. You are my beloved. You know how things can change if we start speaking life instead of death over them? When you see someone who's having a miserable time, speak life, speak love over them and see how it changes. It's amazing. It's amazing. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind. He's talking about his laws, not Mosaic law. And write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of them saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. What? And their sin and lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that day, he says, a new covenant he has made, the first obsolete. Now it is becoming obsolete and growing old. It's ready to vanish away. Let's talk about Mosaic Law. This was 2,000 years ago. The law was abolished when Jesus said, it is finished. Israel's ability to keep the law was abolished in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem, and it will never be reestablished. It's vanishing away. That's what that's referring to. Winding down here, Ephesians 2.12 and 13 and 1.11 says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were far off, having brought near by the blood of Christ. In him we've obtained an inheritance. Christ's blood has brought us near. We are his treasured possession and the rightful heirs of his presence, his provisions, and all other covenant blessings because of one thing, our position being in Christ, that single standard version. You're secure in him. It's not because of anything you do. It's all because of one thing, what he has done. Despite your family pedigree, despite your fluctuating performance, regardless of your birth or behavior, God has agreed to bless you. He's decided to bless you and relate to you clearly on the basis of your secure position in the beloved son. Jesus alone has a perfect pedigree. Jesus alone has the perfect credentials in respect to his family line and history. They're impeccable. Being in him, his perfect pedigree is your perfect pedigree. You are a co-heir with Jesus and have been given full rights of spiritual sonship regardless of what you do or what you've done. It's because of him. All this is because of your position in Christ, because of his grace, which he freely gave and has absolutely nothing to do with performance. Paul in Galatians 3.16 talks about Jesus as being the offspring to which the Abrahamic promises were made. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to seeds, but seeds singular. And then he identifies that seed and your seed who is Christ. 
the law that was introduced 400 years after the covenant given to Abraham cannot annul the covenant of Abraham that was confirmed by God. It cannot make it of none effect. The Abrahamic blessing is a new covenant blessing and has always been. Sadly, we've been taught the same as Israel. There's a two-tier system. We're blessed, but we have to do to earn it. That's a byproduct of the lie. You are blessed. God, Romans 4.17, calls the things that are not as though they are. Start speaking over yourself and others as God declares them. Jesus is the rightful heir to Abraham's blessing. He included all and all our co-heirs with him. It's time we begin to believe that. The moment we trust in Jesus, we come into the realization of our eternally secure position in Christ as a single seed, rightful heir of Abraham, who has perfect pedigree. The promise of greatness, fullness, influence, and significance of great reward and a blessing that is contagious and world-reaching of protection, vindication, and abundant provision of a great personal legacy, land possession, and the privilege of walking blameless in his presence all belong to those who come into a realization of embracing their position. You are and always have been highly qualified because of your position, because of your union in him alone. And this is the gospel that Jesus came to reveal. And this is the gospel which we preach. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And I just speak your blessing. I speak your life over each and every one. I speak your purpose that you have created us with purpose, with destiny, and nothing in all creation can supersede that. As the rain and the snow water the earth, so shall the word be that you are speaking. It will accomplish its purpose. And I speak his blessing that you shall accomplish his purpose in your life, in your family's lives in your community, and in the world around you. You are highly favored, loved, and blessed. Hallelujah. Thank you. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.